0: In this episode of the Live Damn Well podcast.
1: What I realized then was, you know, we, everyone's talking about diet and exercise and they're definitely important, but the amount of attention that they get versus, you know, areas such as your skin rhythm and your light environment is just so disproportionate that there was, there's so much room for improvement. The way red light therapy works is we're giving your cells the exact type of light that they need in order to make energy. So most people have probably heard of the mitochondria. If you haven't heard of it, it's the, the powerhouse within your cell. So it basically makes the energy currency within every single one of your cells, whether it's a brain cell, liver cell, skin cell, muscle cell, almost all of your cells in your body have uh, mitochondria within them and they feed on red and near infrared light. It's exactly what would have happened um, in nature. So on a base level, what we're essentially doing with, with red light therapy is giving whatever targeted cell that is, more energy so that it, it can perform its specific uh, benefit. So just to give an example or a metaphor, if you could think of, if you had a doctor, an engineer and an athlete, you gave each of them more energy, you'd find that each of those, those three people would be able to perform their specific tasks better. You know, the doctor would be better at helping his patients. The engineer would be better at building bridges or designing bridges, whatever it is. The athlete would be a faster runner. The same concept applies with red light therapy. If you're aiming it at your muscle cells, they're going to be able to deal with inflammation better and to recover, you know, damaged muscle tissue quicker. If you're aiming it at uh, skin cells, you know, your skin's going to be able to produce more collagen. So, based on that base understanding, what we've seen in the scientific literature, and as you you mentioned, there's actually there's thousands of studies, published studies on it now. We've seen a wide range of benefits, you know, some of the most well-known ones are decreased inflammation, uh, foster muscle recovery, uh, even improved, uh, muscle growth, muscle endurance is another big one, improved hair growth, skin complexion. We see really, really drastic improvements because, you know, as we started with this podcast, it's just one of those areas people aren't paying enough attention to. And there is so much uh, room for improvement.
0: Welcome to the live damn well podcast. My goal is pretty simple. To bring you both sides of the story in a cancel culture world where open conversation seems to be nearly impossible, especially in the sciences. I hope to bridge the gap between ancestral living and modern medicine, using the best from both worlds to inform how modern humans should live for optimal health and wellness. By interviewing experts in the fields of evolutionary biology, neuroscience, metabolism, exercise physiology, epigenetics, and beyond, I hope to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thank you for joining me. All right, Nick, welcome to the podcast. It's nice to have you, man. So you're really young. We were just talking before the show. Um, I actually thought you were younger than you were. So tell me how you got into, because I'm often asked like, oh, you're so young. Like, why are you getting into health? Like, that's so weird. So tell me how you first got into health and biohacking and what even is biohacking?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking me. Yeah, thanks. Uh, super excited to chat with you guys. Um, you know, I've only just come across your audience, but you guys seem to have uh, very similar, we're in a very similar niche, so super excited to chat to you. Um, but yeah, I'm a little bit older than you, not much, uh, but how I got into it is I studied a BSc in sports science, and then I did an honors in biokinetics, which is very similar to like physical therapy. And I was taught the traditional, you know, approach to health was diet and exercise. Those are the only two things we really got taught. And there was nothing outside of that. You know, it's just exercise five days of the week and eat a ton of vegetables. And, you know, that was the, the cure to health. Right. Um, and then as I was, you know, furthering my studies, I was, I was fortunate enough to go overseas and study through a company called Functional Patterns, um, which is they primarily focus on movement, but they take a very holistic uh, approach to health is, you know, all these different aspects and one of the the areas that I got um, exposed to was uh, your circadian rhythm and your light environment and how that impacted your health and what I realized then was you know we everyone's talking about diet and exercise and they're definitely important but the amount of attention that they get versus you know areas such as your circadian rhythm and your light environment is just so disproportionate that there was there's so much room for improvement Very early on, even before this, I realized that you know one of the the best approaches to health is to try and reconnect with nature. You know, if you if you can figure out how your ancestors lived and you can, you know, try and get a little bit closer to that, that is always to me, that's always made the most amount of sense. And with diet and exercise, I was I was doing that. So I was like, okay, exercise, try and move, you know, like our ancestors did. We sit way too much these days. So, you know, how do I move more like my body basically evolved to do? When it comes to eating, you know, we're eating a ton of processed food and sugars, completely unnatural, um, you know, to be in our diet. So going back to, you know, I originally started with the paleo diet yeah. made a lot of sense. When it came to the light environment, you know, the more and more I learned, I just realized that, you know, we're getting it maybe 10% right. There's just, there's no connection between, you know, how most people are living their lives being indoors, not getting outside enough and getting exposed to enough natural light, getting way too much artificial light at night and not enough, you know, bright light during the day. So for me, I just realized it one of those areas that you can have the most bang for your buck. It was the, you know, we, I saw the, when I started incorporating it with my clients, it was just one of those areas where, you know, with a very small amount of changes, you could have huge improvements in, you know, l- literally things like muscle recovery, uh, sleep quality was getting better, mood, energy levels. There's so many different um, areas of health that this um, had effects on that, yeah, I just realized it was, it was where I was going to have the most impact. And, um, you know, I still firmly believe that diet and exercise are important, but uh, my kind of mission is to educate and equip people with both the knowledge and the tools to understanding their light environment and how they can, you know, bring themselves a little bit closer to nature in order to bioharmonize and to live um, their best life. And as you were saying, sorry, you said you know biohacking. Biohacking—it's a very interesting uh, term. I think there's a lot of definitions on it depending on who you ask. I think biohacking is, to me, it's it's the step of living a modern lifestyle. But using tools around you in order to bring yourself a little bit closer to nature. So some people will call that bioharmonizing. Uh, or some people will say the first thing you should do is bioharmonize. So get outside and get enough natural light exposure. That's obviously your first choice. Um, but when you can't do that, how do we supplement that? And that's obviously what we're gonna be talking about today, is red light therapy. To me, biohacking is that it's using a tool in order to bring yourself, you know, one step closer to nature but you don't have to quit your job and go and live in the wilderness and, you know, be completely off the grid. Biohacking to me is bridging that gap using modern technology to live a modern lifestyle, but still have primal health.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think when people start to talk about biohacking, it kind of gets put into like biotechnology. And to me, it's pretty much what you said. It's we're doing, it's not optimal, right? To use like gadgets and devices like optimal would be to go and live closer to nature i totally agree with you that's literally what we've been hardwired to do since the beginning of time but if we can't do that in our modern environment the best step we can do is just you know use something that simulates nature like a red light device for example so i'm totally on board with that you talked about your your diet 100 i heard that you were doing um stalking your instagram i saw that you were doing like an animal-based diet tell me about that (laughs)
1: Yeah, so I, <laughs> I've tried many different diets. When I was still in varsity, I, st- I tried I tried the vegan diet. I went paleo. I did ketogenic. Uh, there was something here called Banting. It's a South African guy, Tim Noakes, who came up with Banting. It's a low-carb, high-fat diet. And then I came across a podcast as one of Joe Rogan's podcasts where he had a guy on there called Dr. Sean Baker. And Dr. Sean Baker is the yep. guy who promoted uh, the carnival diet. And I think that was one of the last ones for me to ever attempt. And I thought... I thought it was crazy because at the time I was doing the Banting diet, which was very high fat, but I was, you know, eating a ton of spinach, kale, broccoli. I was, you know, smashing vegetables in order to be healthy. And I thought, you know what? I've tried all these other variations. Let me try the carnivore diet. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's for everyone, but for myself, it is the best I'd ever felt. And I was already feeling really, really good, but I just found with the carnivore diet. So just going on to completely animal based diet, I, it is, it is when i had the best cognition the best mood energy sleep everything just really kind of aligned to a point that i never knew uh, was possible and since then you know the more and more i've learned about circadian rhythms and seasonality i don't think it's something that necessarily everyone should do and it should be necessarily a sustained thing so i don't always eat an animal-based diet but for me, it makes a lot of sense that in terms of a seasonal approach, especially for someone, so I'm from a Northwestern um, region. My, my ancestors are from uh, French German. So in winter months, it would make sense that my ancestors would have switched over to a very animal based diet. You know, fruit, fruit especially, would have only been uh, available when there was much stronger light cycles. So in your summer months. So it doesn't really make sense for me to, to be eating f- like a banana in the middle of winter just because I can't import it. Um, and when you start looking at and the, the more and more you start looking at your light environment, you realize the ties between the light that you're being exposed to and the food uh, that you're eating. So just to, just to give you an example, you know the stronger UV light that you're being exposed to, the higher your vitamin D levels are going to be. And there's a lot of research that shows if your vitamin D levels are low, people don't tend to metabolize carbohydrates as well. And that, you know, you completely make sense from a, from a um, evolutionary standpoint is if you were getting more ultraviolet light, it's more likely that there would be fruit in your environment or carbohydrates available at that time. Um, and unfortunately now with imports, exports, you know, you can buy bananas and strawberries and fruit whenever you want, wherever in the world you are, they'll import it. And fortunately there are consequences to that because we're, we're trying to trick you know, trying to outsmart mother nature by, by, right. uh, you know, moving foods across like that. But, um, unfortunately our genes haven't, haven't had time to catch up with that. So to answer your question, your yeah, animal-based diet is primarily what I'll focus on, but I will in a seasonal approach and, you know, focusing on local foods in my region, bring those in and tie those in with the type of light I'm being exposed to and the type of type of food that can be produced in my region, uh, on at that time.
0: Yeah. So I'm assuming, you know, Dr. Jack Cruz and his work.
1: Yes, he's, he's probably yeah. the, the main uh, reason I got into you know, learning about circadian rhythms and, and light environment. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Same here, actually. Um, he's the guy that kind of uh, inspired me to think beyond diet and exercise. And going off of what you just said about the seasonality of foods, it's so crazy that we're like so domesticated that we now think like it's normal to eat a banana in the middle of December in northern Michigan. Right. Like that's something that I actually never thought about. And then when he said it, it's like, Oh, it's so obvious. Like that should have some sort of consequence. Right. But I never thought about it that
1: way. A hundred percent. And I, I was, when I, I heard exactly that he says that expression, eating a, a banana in winter and what I realized at that time, because I was studying um, sports science and I was looking at, there's a lot of bodybuilders that trained around us. And I realized how backward most of them have it. Cause what, what most people do is they want to get lean in in summer months no in yeah they want to get lean in summer months and in winter months they'll do like their bulks they bulk and they'll eat as much carbohydrates as they can in in winter and bulk up but as soon as it comes down to summertime everyone wants to get their beach beach body ready and they're leaning up but that's actually completely the opposite of what would happen in nature in nature you would have you know added a bit of weight and actually probably had a little bit of fat by the end of summer and then in the winter months, you would have, been, you would have fasted more and you wouldn't have had carbohydrates and you would have gotten a little bit uh, leaner, right. but it's just completely the opposite to what people are doing these days.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. It really seems like our modern environment is just, it's totally geared for not supporting health, for supporting disease. Just totally crazy to think about. Um, okay. So let's talk about your company, mitochondria Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so originally we started out uh, with, so we always knew we wanted to do something around light environment, uh, teaching people about the light environment and circadian rhythms. Um, And the whole thing started with the Facebook group. So we have a Facebook group called Circadian Warriors. Um, And before we had a product or anything like that, it was just an education platform. So just getting people together to talk about light, circadian rhythms and anything, you know, that, that people wanted to talk around in that topic. And then eventually we decided, okay, we need to get, you know, some kind of product out there because there's so many tools people can be using. And the first thing we started with, or well, my first kind of business that I started with in that group was blue blocker glasses, like you're currently wearing. Uh, um, and that was to obviously block, you know, the blue light from screens and to help people to improve their sleep at night. Um, and then from there, what's really been our, our main uh, product that we've, we've launched and are now currently doing is red light therapy. Um, which is yeah, just a really great way for people to reconnect or you know, be one step closer to uh, their natural light environment while living that modern modern lifestyle. And obviously, we'll talk more about red light therapy now. But um, for me, that's the most exciting uh, part, or the most exciting thing in my country that we're doing at the moment is the results we're seeing and getting uh, from red light therapy.
0: Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, when I first got introduced to red light therapy, I bought one like almost immediately because I was convinced by partly by Dr. Jack Cruz, but I bought one and I started using it in front of my friends and they just looked at me like I was totally crazy. And and then I started showing them the studies. I was like, okay, you know what? Like let's get into PubMed. Like there are actual studies on this. There are hundreds, if not thousands of them, which is crazy. So tell me about some of the benefits that you know.
1: Yeah, so there's a really wide range of benefits, and I think I always, whenever whenever someone asks me about the benefits, I always feel like I need to preface it with a very base understanding of red light therapy because it can almost seem too good to be true if you just say someone here's what all these benefits are. Right. But on a fundamental level, on a very simple level, the way red light therapy works is we're giving your cells the exact type of light that they need in order to make energy. So most people have probably heard of the mitochondria if you haven't heard of it it's the the powerhouse within your cell so it basically makes the energy currency within every single one of your cells whether it's a brain cell liver cell skin cell muscle cell almost all of your cells in your body have uh, mitochondria within them and they feed on red and your infrared light it's exactly what would have happened um, in nature so on a base level what we're essentially doing with with red light therapy is giving whatever targeted cell that is more energy so that it it can perform its specific uh, benefit So just to give an example or a metaphor, if you could think of, if you had a doctor, an engineer, and an athlete, you gave each of them more energy, you'd find that each of those those three people would be able to perform their specific tasks better. You know, the doctor would be better at helping his patients. The engineer would be better at building bridges or designing bridges. Whatever it is, the athlete would be a faster runner. The same concept applies with red light therapy. If you're aiming it at your muscle cells, they're going to be able to deal with inflammation better and to recover, you know, damaged muscle tissue quicker if you're aiming it at uh skin cells you know your skin's going to be able to produce more collagen so based on that base understanding what we've seen in the scientific literature and as you you mentioned there's actually there's thousands of studies published studies on it now we've seen a wide range of benefits you know some of the most well-known ones are decreased inflammation uh faster muscle recovery uh even improved uh muscle growth muscle endurance is another big one um improved hair growth skin complexion uh, Decreased joint pain. There's there's really an extensive list, and often if you know if, if I don't mention one now that you might be wondering about, a really great idea is to go onto a database like you mentioned onto PubMed. Literally go and type in whatever it is you know be it uh, joint pain or uh, muscle recovery and red light therapy, and you're almost guaranteed that something is going to pop up because we see such you know huge uh, improvements in all of these different areas, and I often say it's because we've got a really um, deficient population to work with because most people are so starved of red and near infrared light. I would love to do this one day. I, I plan on doing this one day. I want to go and do a study where we take like some tribe people, like the Hudson tribe or something, and we have some normal indoor civilians, and we get everyone to do red light therapy. I almost guarantee we're going to see huge improvements in everyday people like you and I. But people who are living outside, we probably wouldn't see that much of an improvement because they're living outside. They're probably getting enough natural... Uh, light, But if you look at the, the research, which is based on everyday people who are living indoor lifestyles, such as us, who don't get outside enough, we see really, really drastic improvements because, you know, as we started with this podcast, it's just one of those areas people aren't paying enough attention to and there is so much uh, room for improvement.
0: This episode is brought to you by Energy Bits. Now, if you haven't heard my episode with Katherine Arnston from Energy Bits, I highly recommend you go check that out. Because there are wide-ranging science-backed benefits of chlorella and spirulina. In fact, there are thousands of studies which show a positive health effect from chlorella and spirulina algae. From building the immune system to supporting B and T cell production, and they provide essential micronutrients which we might not get enough of in our diet. Uh, It aids in energy production and supports detoxification pathways in the liver. And personally, I use algae essentially as a multivitamin since it contains ample amounts of B vitamins, vitamin A, vitamin K, iron, amino acids, essential fatty acids, and chlorophyll. You know, you can blend them in smoothies, use as toppings on salads, or take them as pills. For anyone who can't stomach the strong taste of algae, and I'm totally guilty of that. But why specifically this company? Well, I've extensively researched them. That's kind of why I had them on the podcast. But they are third-party lab tested in the U.S. at an FDA-approved lab to make sure the products actually are what they say they are. So they test for nutrients, safety, and purity, as well as for heavy metals like lead and mercury, and neurotoxins, so you can be sure that you're getting a safe and pure product. This is a huge problem with the supplement industry, but this company seems to have quality at the highest part of what they do. And the CEO, Katherine Arnson, is pretty awesome, so that helps too. If you wanna give Chlorella and Spirulina a try, Energy Bits is providing a generous 20% discount code using code LIVEDAMWELL. Hope you check them out. Now back to the show. Yeah, definitely. And something that you said is is so true. We have become so scared of the sunlight. Like it's insane. There was recently a post I saw on Instagram, which of course, like you got to take with a grain of salt. I'm not sure how true it is, but apparently it was a quote by a dermatologist, which said there is no safe amount of sun exposure. And I was just like, like, really? Are you kidding me? We like that just completely flies in the face of thousands of years of us. I mean, walking around naked, being in the sunlight at all times, that just makes no sense to me. You know,
1: it's crazy. We yeah. had a blog post a while back on tans and it's the same thing. I also found I found a quote from a dermatologist which said there was no such thing as a healthy tan. It said any form of tanning was bad and uh, it obviously meant you'd had too much uh, sunlight exposure which is so crazy when you think of it, why do we find tans attractive? You know, why do people actually spend money to go to a tanning salon and get a tan? It's because intuitively your brain says to you, if someone's got a tan, that person's healthy. He's a fit mate. That's someone I should probably reproduce. That's with a good it. point. If someone's very pale, you think that person's probably sick. Sick. I mean, and, and literally, you know, what are you going to believe? Your natural instincts that you've evolved with or some dermatologist who is probably funded by some sunscreen, <laughs> whatever it is, kind of... Uh, saying you know saying saying something as crazy as any sunlight is bad for you we had i mean when we started with blue blocker glasses i always found this, i find this absolutely crazy it is so easy for people to go out and buy a pair of sunglasses and go oh, I'm you know protecting my eyes from natural sunlight people don't even think twice yet we would have to spend huge budgets on creating courses and adverts and uh, you know putting out information on blog posts to educate people why you shouldn't be staring at an artificial light, you know, such as your computer screen, people don't question that, but yet we go, oh, well, natural light is bad for us. We must wear glasses to protect us from from sunlight. And a dermatologist will come out and say, no, sunlight is good. And I'll bet you that dermatologist dermatologist said absolutely nothing about the dangers of artificial light.
0: Absolutely. It's just like, they're not trained on that stuff. And it's just, yeah, that's something I've seen after interviewing several dozen doctors now. It's just, it's not that they you know, it's not that they're dumb. It's just that they're not taught that at all. What what their curriculum is, is pharmaceuticals, pharmaceuticals, and then like a tiny bit of nutrition, like 20 hours, most, you know, their entire med school curriculum. So it makes sense that they're just simply not aware of it and working under this rigid paradigm of, of basically just dealing with
1: drugs. 100%. And it's also um you know if if we've been talking about it quite a bit but this whole primal approach and how do you you know what how did our ancestors live that is something they never they never really look at or or get taught they get taught symptom-based treatment you know how do you treat a specific symptom right not the underlying the underlying causes never uh looked at
0: so you talked a little bit about the mechanism of uh how red light can have an effect on your cells and essentially like power your cells How does that happen? Like, take me to the cellular level. How does that happen?
1: So within your uh, mitochondria, there is something called the electron chain transport. And basically what is happening is within uh, one of the membranes, you're trying to create what your mitochondria is trying to do is create this gradient uh, where it will pump out a whole bunch of hydrogens to the outside of the um, membrane along this chain. And then by the end of that chain, it allows, it basically uses that gradient of a whole bunch of hydrogens outside flowing into an area where there isn't a lot of hydrogen. It uses that gradient to spin a turbine. So think of if you have, you know, a glass of water and you put a little bit of salt in the water. If, if you've got a whole bunch of salt, it's going to disperse and, you know, evenly go across that area. So very similar, if you could think of what's happening in the mitochondria is it's taking little hydrogen molecules and pushing it on to the outside. And at the end, it's allowing them back in because of that, that gradient where you've got so much hydrogen outside and then a little bit on the inside, and then that is spinning a turbine. And I know that that probably doesn't make you know complete sense if you've never heard of the mitochondria or anything like that. So again, another another metaphor to kind of make help that make sense is if you can think of a hydro station, where a hydro station will use flowing water in order to spin a, a turbine which generates electricity. It's very similar to what happens within your mitochondria is that gradient is then spinning a turbine, just uh, which basically creates uh, the the process of making ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is your cell's uh, energy currency. And how red basically um, helps this process is it jumps within this electron transport chain and increases the amount of hydrogen molecules being pushed out. So now you get this increase in uh, proton gradient, and that helps to spin the turbine faster, which then generates more energy. I know it's not the simplest. Uh, there's probably a simpler way to explain it. And I hope that makes uh, complete sense. But in a base a sense, that's what's happening within the mitochondria.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, basically, let me see if I'm getting this right. To paraphrase, you can think of kind of like a hydroelectric dam. And if you are, and the hydrogen would be the water in this case, right? And the water flowing out of the mitochondria would spin up this machinery creating ATP and red light seems to make that work better.
1: hundred percent. Yeah. So it seems to upregulate that process. It's one of the ways that it works. There are other ways. There's also, I mean, we we're not in saying that it's not completely clear if that is the way that it it works. There's also some people, some uh, research which theorizes that, um, Another kind of aspect of it is that red light, red and infrared light helps to free nitrogen oxide uh, within your cells, which helps to increase blood flow and oxygen delivery within the cell. What we do know for a certain though, is that the end result is more ATP production. The theory is that it is the, the second uh, chromophore, which, which is basically something that absorbs light within this uh, electron transport chain. And the main theory is that red and near infrared light is absorbed by this part of your mitochondria, which increases this process but there are other theories. We do know the end result is that, that ATP production, that energy production uh, within the cell.
0: I want to take us back to something that we started talking about earlier with bananas in Northern Michigan. So we didn't talk about deuterium. We talked about vitamin D, right? But deuterium is something that I have become really interested in, especially Jack Cruz just like You know, that that was the platform, which I started to learn all of this stuff from, but I interviewed Dr. Joel Gould, who is also super interested in biophysics. And I think he, he consults with, or used to work with the centers for deuterium depletion. And it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, if you're in the sunlight a lot, your ATPase also starts to spin faster and you start to make that molecular machinery work better. And if you have too much deuterium, you might like plug it up, so to speak.
1: If you have too much, say the last part again, if you have too much, deuterium, too much... you might plug it up. Yes. Yeah, so deuterium is essentially a, a it's, it's an isotope. So it's a heavier form of hydrogen. So you, everyone, you know, everyone's probably heard of hydrogen, but you actually get different variations where technically on the structural point, there is all on the periodic table, they're both classified as hydrogen, but deuterium is the heavier version. And that turbine that we were speaking about that spins, that that red light is helping to spin, if that has got a heavy form of hydrogen, such as deuterium on it, it's going to spin slow. And that's completely, it's physics. You know, you think if something's lighter, it's going to get a lighter turbine, it's going to be able to spin faster. And that's exactly where de- de- deuterium comes in. If you've got too much deuterium within your cells, then there's a higher probability that your cell is trying to spin a heavy turbine. Um, and therefore you're not going to have as efficient production of uh, energy or ATP.
0: Right. Yeah, and I didn't know this too, but it seems like the work that the Center for Deuterium Depletion is doing, it seems like even like GMO foods, non-organic foods, and, um, you know, like tropical fruits, like bananas, mangoes, um, all the things that require a lot of um, strong UV light in order to grow them have the highest concentration of deuterium, which makes a lot of sense with the seasonal eating that you're talking about.
1: Yeah, and I can't, I can't remember the specific reason why, but I know that plants will also send all of their deuterium to their fruit. So within that entire plant in the tree or bush or wherever that, uh, let's say a banana, a banana bush, not a banana tree. I learned that recently. Bananas don't go on trees. They grow on bushes. That bush will technically, well, what it will do is it'll push all of its deuterium out uh, to the fruit. I'm not exa- exactly sure why. I'm not sure if it's a, um, a survival mechanism, but again, in, in fruit, you're going to get a variation of deuterium forms of hydrogen
0: interesting i didn't actually know that that's very interesting um, okay so we've talked about several benefits now i'm i've heard that there are also some pretty cool interactions that it has with collagen tell me a little bit about that helps to what oh, you mean produce... the production of collagen yes
1: right yeah so so within within skin cells we know that if they're exposed to rin and near infrared light we see an um, increased production of collagen and I think you know that again just comes down to the base mechanism of your skin cells. If they've got more energy, they're going to be able to work more effectively. And one of the roles of your endothelial cells is to produce collagen, which is going to make your skin look supple and, and young. Um, but then on the other hand, and this is often a, often needs to be spoken about is on a systemic point of view, you know if you're targeting, if you're aiming red light therapy, let's say, for instance, at your face for collagen production it's not just going to do that. You're also going to be helping your cells to deal with uh, inflammation. So if you can think of your skin cells now have less inflammation to deal with, they're also going to have more capacity in order to produce more collagen. Um, And I mean, I've seen some really good research. If people want to look up uh, red light therapy and just type in red, this is probably a great one because then you'll see some studies that have actually got like before and after photos. And you can see people's skin actually, I think it was like a 12 week study it's a whole bunch more plump and wrinkle lines literally start disappearing people literally anti-age, um, from red light therapy. And it's it's against that increased collagen production. Um, and you know, just making the skin healthier in general.
0: Right. Yeah. That's super interesting. Um, let's talk about what people should look for in a red light device.
1: <laughs> Very good question. <laughs> so there is a bit of a problem in the industry at the moment, because unfortunately, if you don't have testing equipment it just looks like a red light and there's a lot of devices on the market that could just be fancy party lights and they probably have some benefits because if you're using a red light instead of blue light you know it's going to be a good uh, light replacement in the evenings but there's a big gap at the moment between between what's in the research what's being used the medical grade devices and then what you know a lot of the research has been based on has been lasers primarily actually and there's a big gap between that and what are being sold as home devices, because most red light therapy companies, and that includes us, one of the things we'll we'll state is, you know, red light therapy has been featured in thousands of clinical studies and has been proven X, Y, and Z, all these different benefits. But the the home devices that are on the market at at the moment can be very different to the ones that are used in the studies. So I would say before we even talk about the specifications, the number one thing to look for with a red light therapy uh, company or a device is to look for results, look for their own results to actually see, you know, are people getting benefits using uh, their own devices? And you do see this. uh, I mean, you don't see this with with, um, every single company. A lot of companies will just show the studies and then just have their product. And I think if you're, I mean, we've only been in the industry for three years now and we have literally uh, entire pages on our website where you can see testimonials and video reviews of people talking about, uh, the results they've gotten with our devices. I think it's an absolute es- essential if you're looking for a device, the first thing to look for is to make sure that the company has their own results with their own devices uh, and their own customers. And then on the technical side, so there's a few things. The main one to look at is uh, probably the light's intensity. Um, so it can vary depending on uh, you know how close you are to the device. The further away from the device you are, the lower the light's intensity. You probably want to be aiming between 80 to 100 milliwatts per centimeter squared, which is just a measurement um, of light intensity or irradiance. Um, But more important than the actual number, 80 to 100 is a good good region to look at. But more important than the number is that the company is transparent about uh, at what distance they took that measurement. So we, we market our devices all around 100 milliwatts per centimeter squared at six inches away from the device. And there are some companies that won't tell you how far away they were from the device. So they'll just say 100 milliwatts per centimeter squared when meanwhile that was right up against the device so if you're a couple of inches away from the device you have no idea you know what kind of light intensity you're getting and a right. lot of underpowered devices underpowered devices will do this with well, other un, yeah, companies with under underpowered devices will take those measurements right up against it and not be fully transparent i mean with our Larger devices, we even go up to 60 inches um, in, in terms of the specifications because we have a lot of our uh, customers are like athletes or people who are physical therapists. They're a little bit further away from their device when they're doing the treatment. So you want to know, you know what kind of dose you're getting uh, from your device. So the main one, light intensity, and then the transparency um, of the, the distance they were for that. Um, and then another big one I'm sure you're familiar with is electromagnetic fields or EMFs. That's something Jack Cruz talks about a lot um, and electromagnetic fields are essentially or let's say non-native ones are, are basically just electric fields and magnetic fields that we get exposed to from things like our, our cell phones, uh, wi-fi, any electrical device or anything with an electrical flow will emit some kind of uh, magnetic field and you know whether or not whether or not it uh, it's completely you know whether or not everyone believes in it. I we as a company definitely do say that it's safer to you know limit your amount of EMF exposure, um, and if you want a good quality device, you've got to make sure that it is one that is marketed as EMF free or at least is transparent about what the, the levels of EMF is uh, when you're doing your treatment. Now, one of the beauties with uh, electro one of the beauties one of the good things with electromagnetic fields is the further away from a device you are, the lower they are, it, it drops off pretty quickly. So with our devices, we're kind of killing two birds with one stone by being very high powered. You can do your treatment at six inches and beyond. And at six inches and beyond, there's zero electromagnetic fields uh, with our devices. Whereas with other ones, you know, if you've got to be really close, you're gonna find that you're gonna be within a magnetic field, which is not gonna, if, if you are worried about it, it's just gonna be an excessive form of uh, electromagnetic field exposure. Um, So those are the the first two specifications. And then the last one would be flicker rate. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I'm getting into detail with all of these specs here. No, that's great. That's great. uh, (laughs) So all of our electricity grids, they run on alternating currents, which basically means that it switches on and off at a really high rate. It might be uh, 50 or 60 Hertz, depending on where in the world you are, if you're Europe or America. But basically, what happens is with most LED lights, the cheaper ones especially, they will flick off and on at a really high rate because of the alternating current that they're uh, receiving. So it's not normally you can't perceive it with your eye. But if you take a like your phone and you do a slow motion video of uh, like a cheap LED light, you'll see that it flickers off and on at a really high rate. And even though your eyes can't perceive it, there is quite a bit of research that shows a flickering LED can uh, lead to you know side effects such as headaches and eye strain um, because it's creating this subliminal stress uh, within your brain. So a high quality uh, red light therapy device should also have drivers installed within them, which basically, in a nutshell, converts this alternating current into a direct current so that you don't have that uh, flickering effect. So those last two points, the EMF and the the flicker rate those are just really important. If you really want to be getting the most bang from your buck with your red light therapy device, you know, why take, why take three steps forward and then take one step back because you know, red and red light is extremely healthy for you. But while you're doing that, why would you want to expose yourself to excessive EMF levels? Or if you're doing that, why would you want to have the risk of, you know, this flickering light causing a subliminal stress within your brain?
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And to those people who do not yet believe in the effects, the negative effects of EMFs, you are living like 40 years in the past, because the research is really, really clear. Like, I'm not just saying that, like, if you go and look into um, an independent scientific organization, the Environmental Health Trust, they are probably the single best source of information about electromagnetic fields. On their website, they literally have hundreds of peer-reviewed studies. They have thousands of studies which show a biological effect on tissues. So, if you are still on that boat where you think we should be wearing tinfoil hats, that's totally <laughs> not the case, right?
1: <laughs> I'm actually so glad that you pushed that because I I, I stepped around that right now and I wasn't that. I, I completely am on the same page as you about this, but it's so hard because I'm. You know, when you're teaching someone something new about red light therapy, there's so much evidence behind it. I don't want to come across as a tinfoil hat person but you're so right there's so much evidence around um emf fields now that if you still believe that they're not having an effect on you then you're living under a rock or you're just avoiding the research or you don't want to believe it you've got you know the cognitive dissonance you're not wanting to see these things it's true it's out there man there's uh there's definitely effect i mean you put a you put your steak in a microwave there you've got emf those are electromagnetic fields you put your steak in there and you leave it in there for 10 minutes that thing dries out that's meat that's exactly that's what you're made of If you're being exposed to that, what do you think is going to happen to yourself? Put yourself in a microwave all the time. There's an effect of EMFs on your body.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually the FCC, which regulates, you know, all of the telecommunications um, in the United States, they got sued this past year by several scientific organizations. So this is all happening. The problem is like COVID was, you know, the highlight of everything. So all of these other relatively smaller issues were kind of set aside, but they're literally being sued for being known as like a captured agency where they are uh, basically people that work for the telecommunications uh, industry. We're working for the regulatory committee, which is supposed to regulate the telecommunications. So totally backwards. Um, okay. So what wavelength should one look for in a red light device?
1: So technically red light therapy is anywhere between 600 and a thousand. Nanometers, so that starts at like your orangey red and then goes all the way up to near infrared. Ideally, you want to make sure that you've got something within the red spectrum, so that's between six and seven hundred nanometers, and then you also want to have something in the near infrared spectrum. Most, uh, the most well researched is eight hundred and fifty nanometers, and both all of these wavelengths, well the the let's say the red and the near infrared uh, wavelengths, they're going to work very similarly. Similarly, where they will upregulate uh, the mitochondria. The main difference between them is the depth of penetration. So the higher wavelengths, your near infrared, is going to penetrate deeper into your tissues. So for something like uh, joint pain, you would want more of the near infrared. But then for something that's more superficial, so let's say your skin tissues, those will do really well with um, the red wavelengths. Now, if you're getting a good red light therapy device, have a combination. You know, make sure you're getting, um, you know, hitting all all the, uh, killing two birds with one stone. There's a better expression than, than that, but. Um, So like our devices, we use two uh, wavelengths within the red range. So we use 630 and 660 nanometers. And then we use uh, 850 nanometers as the near infrared spectrum. And then a device, you know, if you've got all that, you're basically making sure that you're targeting the the outer layers of your tissues and the deeper layers at the same time.
0: Got it. And what's the dosage? So like how much time and what time is a day should people use it?
1: So dosage varies quite a lot depending on the benefit, Um, especially with skin benefits, you can get away with really low doses, so something like between three and six joules per centimeter squared. And it gets a little bit intricate, but there is ways to calculate that. Um, Our devices all come with an online calculator, so there's an easy way to to figure that out. But... um, Lower dosage, like between three and six joules per centimeter squared is what you would work with for uh, skin tissues. And then deeper benefits or even um, more systemic benefits, something like sleep quality. Um, The studies normally use a dose around 30 joules per centimeter squared, so like 10 times that amount. And to put that into time sessions, and obviously this is me speaking on the mitochondria devices, it might be a lot more if you're using a very underpowered device. Uh, But the skin benefits could be within like two minutes. And then sleep benefits would probably be around, it's like, I think it's eight or nine minutes. Uh, It's around that region uh, when you're targeting like 30 joules, something for, for sleep quality. Time of day. It's not too important, the time of day, because red and near-infrared light is such a dominant type of light that we got from the sun. It doesn't play a very significant role in setting our circadian rhythm. You know, something like blue light is really important to you know, be careful. You don't want to expose yourself to blue light at night, because then you're going to be offsetting your circadian rhythm. But because you know, we've always been exposed to red and near-infrared, be that from sunlight, be that from a fire, even be that from another human body, That's you know any heat being emitted is actually infrared light because it's been such a dominant type of light that we're exposed to the timing doesn't matter that much. What we always say, the most important thing is consistency. So when are you going to make sure that you're going to do your red light therapy, you know, every single day for most people that is morning time. Um, I find it extremely, you know, it's, it's a great part of my morning routine is to include the red light therapy um, at that time. And you can also habit stack it, which is really cool. I'm I'm sure you're probably familiar with uh, atomic habits or habit stacking. Um, And with red light therapy, you know, you don't just have to sit in front of your device. A lot of our uh, customers will do like Wim Hof breathing or meditation or even doing some journaling. It's really great to incorporate that as part of a a morning routine in order to be consistent with it. Um, Even at nighttime, you know, you can do your red light therapy sessions. The only kind of, there's only one time I'd say is be a little bit careful with it is just before you're going to bed, aiming it directly at your face it's not that red, red and near-infrared light has that much of a, like a circadian effect, as we spoke about now. Blue light is definitely the worst for that. But because the lights are so powerful, it, it doesn't really matter what the color is. You're going to find it somewhat stimulating, especially if you're aiming it um, at your face. The only time to really be careful is uh, like, like an hour, within an hour of going to bed, uh, bed. But otherwise, more important is your consistency. When are you going to be able to fit it into your routine?
0: Damn, this has been a very, very informative episode so far. Um, unfortunately, that is almost everything that I wanted to cover during this podcast. So usually what I have people do at the end of the podcast is a rapid fire rounds question. So number one, what is the most important habit that you personally do every single day to support your health?
1: I'm not going to say red light therapy. You know what I'm going to yeah, say? Yeah, You better not say red light therapy. Every day. <laughs> 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 the most important thing, and, and this has been something that I've done in the last two months is not looking at my cell phone or not switching it off airplane mode for the first two hours. So I don't look at my phone emails, anything like that. I make sure that I do my workout. I do all my other habits. The main habit is leaving my phone and my computer away from me for the first two hours and starting my day without it. I think it's a terrible dopamine fix. I think it trains your brain to be distracted. And for me, I can feel like I'm a, my brain's completely different based on, on doing that. that. That's my, my, <laughs> yeah,
0: no, I do the same. Um, number two, what is the most important lesson that you've learned recently or in the pandemic through a book, anything?
1: I think the most important thing that I've learned recently. Um, so I read a very good book recently called the Mastery of self. And one of them is about self-acceptance and looking at your own flaws. And I think one of the things I've learned recently is to, by accepting my own flaws in who I am and the things that I need to work on. I've become more tolerable of other humans. So I think not putting yourself on a pedestal and expecting yourself to be perfect helps you a lot to deal with other people and to actually truly see other people for who they are. And I know this is completely off topic, but (laughs) rapid fire questions, man, you got me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, What advice, I know you're not too far from 20 years old, but what advice would you give your 20 year old self?
1: Uh, Start focusing on your light environment. I'm going to throw that one in now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay.
0: Um, All right. And the most important question of this podcast, do you shine red light on your balls?
1: Absolutely. Every single day I do, I do at least three to five minutes uh, in that area. It's, you know, we're talking about, obviously most of us don't get outside enough, but even when we do get outside, especially for males, it's that one uh, area we're not exposing, uh, you know, our genitals don't get exposed to enough sunlight and it's where testosterone is made. It's so important that that, that area gets some form of natural light energy. Obviously you don't want to burn them with, with ultraviolet light. Right. Um, you know, you wouldn't want to cook that area, but it's probably one of the most important areas that you can be exposing uh, to red and near infrared light. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So important. I don't know how much research there is on that, but definitely makes a lot of sense. You know, like vitamin D3 being made right there topically makes a lot of sense. Um, All right, man. Look, there isn't
1: actually a lot of research. So I just want to add one point. So we've recently done a blog on this and there isn't a lot of, Large trial uh, research. So there's there's research using uh, bright light boxes, which isn't specifically just red and near infrared light, uh, in humans, and that's shown really positive results. Also with um, sperm motility. So basically, uh, males will become more fertile, and that's always correlated with um, improvements in testosterone. But then there are a lot of animal studies uh, where basically they've done it with rats, and they've shown red and near infrared light has improved testosterone. And then there's a ton of anecdotal things. Ben Greenfield uh, reports using. Thing, uh, red, red light therapy to triple his testosterone uh, yeah. by aiming it at his nuts in his testes
0: yeah <laughs> the technical term for it right
1: <laughs> technical term is, is a better word
0: <laughs> uh all right man where can people find out more about you and your work
1: cool so on instagram that's probably the best place to find mychondria so it's at my it's m-y-c-h-o-n-d-r-i-a our website's mychondria.com Um, And then if you want to find me on Instagram, that's circadian uh, circadian underscore warrior.
0: Awesome, man. I really appreciate your time. This was an amazing episode. Um, Hope to have you back on again at some point to talk about any other thing relating to circadian rhythms or health.
1: Cool. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: If you like this episode and if you've liked some of my other episodes with other guests, please take the time to review this podcast on iTunes. That would be incredibly helpful to me and getting this message out to way more people.